Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kemp. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming third and most exciting adventure yet, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, uh, which will be available in late spring, early May of 2020. Uh, so make sure that you pick your copy up, get excited. You can get the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as an ebook. For free, whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So download that, get yourself started on the 11 year old Banneker Bones biracial boy detective who fights giant robot bees on a jetpack with an EMP blast rifle. It's a good time. It's Batman at age 11. It's the story of my heart. Uh, and I can't wait to release the third. Uh, and we'll see. I. I don't think it's going to be the final uh, book, but it's going to be an ending uh, so that when we uh, do book four, eventually it will be a sort of rebirth for Benneker. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write uh, novels for older readers, such as the young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story. I think the title makes it pretty clear what those are about. Uh, if you like your zombies slow and creeping, if you like your teens desperate and in despair, then all together now, a uh, zombie story is for you. It's also kind of funny, if I do say so myself. Uh, lots of jokes to uh, temper the despair and the uh, destruction of humanity and the apocalypse with. You, you want to have some laughs in there as you go. So check that one out. Uh, check out Pizza Delivery. Uh, and then check out The Book of David. The Book of David is a five-volume uh, horror serial novel. Um, it's written in the style of Stephen King. It's an atheist buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is madness, and it gets crazier with each ramping up of each chapter. Um, so you can check out all five chapters. It's a single compilation. You're going to love it. Just buy the whole thing. Go nuts. Uh, if you want to dip your toe in, you can check out the Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Uh, as an ebook, you can download Chapter 1 for free anytime you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so check that out. As always, make sure you're visiting middlegradeninja.com, not just because there's lots of information about me, although isn't that awesome, uh, but because there are interviews with hundreds of publishing professionals, authors, people you're interested in. You uh, will have to read some of them, but that's okay. Uh, it's worth checking out an interview with Kate DiCamillo or with, um, uh, you know what, I get bad when I start listing names because I'm going to leave somebody out, so we'll just say Kate DiCamillo, let's move on. Uh, hundreds of authors and publishing professionals to check out. Uh, also, you'll get a list of who's coming up on the show, who's going to be appearing here. Next Saturday, I'll be sitting here with somebody who will also be fascinating. Today, I couldn't be more excited. I'm going to talk with one of my... Uh, long-term online, I don't know, what do you call us, online friends, online associates, uh, uh -huh. the uh, woman, the myth, the legend, uh, authoress Anand, and Jillian Bohm. Jillian, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. I am so excited to, to talk with you. Probably a good place to get started because I'm terrible with uh, other people's biographies. Uh, other people's biographies and other people's books. If I try to summarize, I'm going to make a mess of it. Uh, so just give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Well, um, I actually have a degree in music education. Um, I was a piano major and um, was um, thought maybe I would be a music teacher, but that didn't work out. Um, I've actually been writing from a very young age. Um, 
and I had a actually a wonderful third grade teacher who really encouraged me. She compiled a book of my short stories and poems through the entire school year, and then we presented that to our school library. Um, and then many years later, I went back to my elementary school and asked them if they still had it, and they did. So I got to bring it home, and I have it. It's a treasure. Um, so even though I took another path in college, I think that writing is really my roots um, that I returned to many years later. I taught for a little while and then started my family, made the decision to stay at home with my kids. Um, and the writing started to grow back into my life while I was raising my kids. So here I am. And I'm so uh, curious, uh, anytime I talk to somebody who has a passion other than writing and yet is so so clearly so passionate about writing, <laughs> no one in their right mind could say that the uh, woman that ran Miss Sark's victim for how many years now? Oh, like maybe 12, I think. Well. That's that's passion. You can't argue that that's not passionate <laughs> for writing. Uh, and even if you did, if you read Stormrise, which you should do, esteemed audience, read Stormrise, you're going to love it. It uh, has the, the ninja seal of approval. Um, you're going to feel that passion. So there's there's no question in my mind that you love writing. So I'm always fascinated when I talk to somebody who loves something else because writing so rarely leaves room for something else. True. When you are doing music and, and, and you sing and you, you, play, you play piano, right? I'm a pianist, yeah. But does I'm, that uh, does that fulfill that same need as writing, or will is is it possible to have both of those things, both those loves and passions, going equally at the same time? Uh, it really is, but I think that it's important to um, put most of your energy into what you do best. And I think that if I compare myself as a musician and as a writer, I've just what I've discovered in the last decade or so is that writing is something that I am able to do better. Um, so the music what is very important to me. I do sing with the Nashville Symphony Chorus, which is amazing because the Nashville Symphony is an amazing group of musicians and they've really grown um, over the last couple of decades. They are now a Grammy award-winning symphony. So it's an honor and a privilege. And it's very humbling to sing um, with them. In fact, it's Messiah Week this week, so we're going to be um, doing our annual Messiah performances. So I'm really pumped about that because it really fills a very deep um, passion in my soul because um, I've been doing music for as long as I've been doing writing as well. I started the piano at six. Um, but when it's all said and done, um, you know, you make a choice to be professional at something. And I made the choice to stay home with my children, which meant putting the music aside. And, you know, if you want to be really good at music, you have to put a lot of time into the practicing. Um, and so I don't think that I could do both. I don't think I could be a musician to this level and a writer to this level as well. Um, but when it comes to that, what you said, that meeting that need, like on the inside, do they meet the same thing? They really do, because I think that creative thing that's inside of all of us, whether we're writers, artists, whatever we are, I think it, it's in the same place. And so however we're expressing that does meet that need, maybe just in a little different way. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I never know what to call that need. Is it a spiritual need? Is it a uh, just I a hole inside where your better parenting maybe would have created for it? <laughs> maybe that's it. It's definitely a hole, though. It's, it's a creation-shaped hole. And so whatever our creativity is, we have to fill that with what's inside us. And, and it makes us, I think, more alive. And I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic, but 
I feel bereft when, and I know you understand that, if that's not somehow happening. So, yeah, but I, I need them both in my life for sure. Oh, I meet people constantly who do not have that problem, and I'm a little bit jealous. Like, <laughs> you, you just go home, and then what do you do? I ah, watch Netflix, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. I bet <laughs> it is. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, but when uh, obviously you're you're still doing both in, in in some capacity, so you haven't you haven't ever traded one for the other completely. And I'm assuming that uh, even when you were a music major, 100% focused on music, were you still finding time to write creatively anywhere in there? Not really. I mean, my, my biggest accomplishment in my college years was I wrote a scathing editorial um, in the school newspaper because uh, somebody in the cafeteria would not let me take my coffee out in the thermos to my eight o'clock class, which I had been doing all semester um, because there was some policy about not leaving the premises with food. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is my caffeine for my eight o'clock class. They seriously wouldn't let me leave with the coffee. So I wrote an editorial that was not very nice, but funny and scathing. And I was very proud of myself for doing that. But I mean, that's all I really did because I was a music geek. I spent hours in the practice room. It was my life. And I really feel like I lost sight of my writing um, because I had these other interests. I was also in, in high school, I was really into theater. And I'm really surprised actually that I chose music over theater because I just loved theater. So I was just one of those kids who was involved in everything too much. And, um, and the writing just wasn't on the rungs of the ladder. So I'm glad I found my way back. Do you still occasionally find an outlet for some uh, theater work or is going out and uh, doing author visits and, and all this promotion filling that need? You know what? It really does. I mean, I know a lot of authors are very nervous when they're presented with the possibility of having to speak, present, be on a panel. And for me, I'm like, yeah, I got this. Because if you give me a microphone, I'm really happy. So I think I'm tapping into that part of me as well, that part that doesn't mind presenting to an audience. Because in a way, it's just um, your performing. It's a performance. And uh, as a musician and as a years ago theater geek, I mean, I did a lot of performing. So I think that's helping me now as a debut author um, not get all worked up about having to talk to people. And I've, I've actually really enjoyed it. So, yeah. I think that's a huge advantage uh, in the author world. It's kind of like being the, the shortest midget. Uh, <laughs> or, I'm sorry, the tallest midget. Uh, if you can go out and you can... Uh, uh, I like shortest midget better, but whatever. Uh, if you can go out and you can uh, talk to people, you're already head and shoulders above uh, so many introverts that want to stay home and, and do all the writing. Oh, yeah, it's true. So I'm actually very thankful because actually I am an introvert, as so many of us are. Um, but I might be more of an ambivert, which is that middle ground, um, because I a lot of people, when I tell them I'm an introvert, they don't believe me. Like, no, you're not, you're not an introvert. Like, no, I just like to talk. Don't get confused. It's, I'm really an introvert. So, so yeah, I do feel like it's an advantage because it can be really scary to, um, to authors who really would rather just stay home with their cat and write, you know? Which ultimately is, I, I think, what we should want from authors uh, because it's, it's the books we want. I love 
Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. I love when authors come on the podcast and talk to me. That's, that's exciting and wonderful. I love seeing authors at events. But at the same time, if uh, I'm talking to a favorite author uh, and they're trying to figure out how to spend their year and they're like, okay, well, I can write two books this year or I can write a book and do this many visits. Like, no, write two books. I won't be able to see all the visits. I can right. read both books. Stay home. <laughs> Stay home and write. Yeah. Your cat needs you. Get back to your office. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, tested. I don't, I don't know how accurate these tests are, especially not when uh, I'm talking about a test I took 20 some odd years ago. Uh, but I originally tested as uh, equally ambivert, uh, half extrovert, half introvert, right. which made perfect sense to me. Like, oh, that, that explains my life because I'll run out and I'll start some stuff. And then I'll be like, oh, that's enough. I got to go hang out by myself for a bit. You, just, you fill up and you max out and you're done. And you just have to go home and hide and married someone who's the same way which is very convenient because we'll we'll go out to uh, an event together and we'll be uh wing wing people we'll uh, support each other and get it all out and then the next day uh we're gonna go to our separate corners of the house and and have total quiet time and she understands and i understand everyone's okay with that that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've tried to uh, I, in my earlier years, I tried dating someone who was an extreme extrovert all the time. Like, no, this, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Sorry. No I can't. That's exhausting, <laughs> right? Yeah. The other thing, uh, cause I was also a bit of a theater nerd and what always bugged me as I, I transferred a little bit into uh, film and that was a little bit more satisfying because what bugs me about theater is even when you get it a hundred percent perfect, it's for that audience only. And then you got to find a way to do it again the next night. And then if it didn't go so well the next night, I'd be just uh, horrified. But, oh, whereas with writing, certainly, you can get that thing um, honed to where it's exactly what you wanted to say, the way you wanted to say it. There it is. People can dislike it if they want to. But by God, I'm not going to feel guilty because we have a difference of opinion. I'm 100 percent on board that that's what I meant to say. That's right. They don't see the mess beforehand. They don't see the mistakes and the process. And the other nice thing is once it's really done, then I can walk away. And I only had to be that smart for that day. I don't need to keep it with me. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so if uh, you asked me about flying saucers, I could have told you everything there was to know about them when I was doing the Book of David. Uh, but now uh, that's uh, almost, yeah, two full books ago. I, I, I have some knowledge, but not much. <laughs> it's mostly gone. I just knew it perfectly on the day. We're good. <laughs> that's right. Well, since I brought it up, let's just transition to that question. Everybody listening knows I have to ask you sooner or later. Jillian uh, Bohm, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? Rob, I have never seen a flying saucer, and I really want to believe in them. How's that? I like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see one, too. I haven't seen one, but it's on my, uh, my bucket list. Yeah. And it's something else I noticed when I was reading your bio uh, was that you um, attribute your love of reading uh, to your parents reading to you, and you learned to read at actually age four, mm -hmm. uh, so well advanced. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your early experience and how you think maybe that's uh, informed your life as a as a book enthusiast. It's such a good question, and I give it so much weight. Um, it was my mom who was the primary person who read to me, though my dad always read to us the night before Christmas every Christmas Eve. It was, we couldn't go to bed until he read that out loud to us. So that was very, very precious. But um, there was a thing, it was a, called the Dr. Seuss Book Club, where every month I would get a book in the mail in a brown 
box and we never knew what the book was and they weren't all by Dr. Seuss um, but they were all um, in this series of this book club and it was so exciting to get that unmarked box I still remember the excitement of that and uh, and then so I started to get this collection of these little hardcover mostly Dr. Seuss books um, and those are the ones that my mom would read out loud to me over and over and over again. Um, and so I started to kind of teach myself to read at four. Um, and I'm convinced it's because of all the time that she invested in reading out loud to me. I actually have a memory of um, a pair of her shoes um, sitting in the upstairs bathroom and they said Sears on the inside. And I remember pointing and saying Sears and she went, Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, wow. I was so literate. I was reading shoes at the age of four. Um, but yeah, and I remember, I actually remember when we finally canceled the book club. And I didn't understand that um, once it was one of those things where, you know, it keeps coming, it keeps coming until you cancel. And they got to the point where, yeah, I think we have enough books. We don't want to do this anymore. But they accidentally sent us a book. And my mom was like, no, I'm sorry, you can't open that box. It has to go back. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> There's a book in there. <laughs> that was my earliest trauma, Rob, I think. Just yeah. this deep desire for the book you couldn't have. <laughs> I'll never know what was in the box. So, but yeah, that was, that was such a big part of my early years. And so then I went to kindergarten and my kindergarten teacher knew that I was already um, reading uh, at a certain level. So when she would work on phonics with the kids, she had a rack of books in the back of the classroom and she would let me go and quietly pick a book and read to myself so that I didn't have to sit through the parts that I didn't need to do. So that was also very helpful you know, to have a teacher who was right there just feeding my love for books and not making me sit and say B says B if I didn't need to. You know, I think that's, I think that takes a special teacher too, so. When you were allowed to pick out the books you wanted to read, you weren't being force-fed books that they thought would make you, uh, I don't know, a better human being or whatever? I don't think so. You know, this was 1970, so I think they were just, you know, books. They were just I couldn't even tell you what they were, but she had them on a, a display. So, yeah. yeah. I'm always annoyed when I encounter that. I work a little bit with the school system here. Uh, and when I see people trying to force kids to read books that I wouldn't read, I know they're boring. I read them in high school. Like the right. Scarlet Letter, you can skip it. It's terrible. <laughs> I know some people I hate that just turned book. off the show. Oh and I'm never going to listen again, Middle Grade Ninja. You suck. But I really feel the Scarlet Letter. You, you can skip it. You'll be fine. <laughs> so you and I are on the, on the same page on that. But what, 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 what I hate is when I, I, I see that they, oh, they kind of associate with when I read, I'm doing something I have to do. Right. because And it's going to be boring and unpleasant. Whereas if you just let them read whatever they want, even if what they want is a book that's half a graphic novel or all graphic novel, great. It's words on a page. Let them go. <laughs> They're still reading. They're still reading. Yep. So did you uh, did your love of reading continue then, even when you were fully focused on music? Were you still coming home to a nice book? In college, not so much, um, because, you know, college sucks all the life out of your brain and all the reading you have to do is for your classes. And when you're a music major, your workload is triple 
um, the other students because in addition to just your basic classes that you have to take the coursework outside of music, you have to take all these little classes that you're not even getting full credit for, like learning all the different instruments and guitar class and theory, written theory and oral theory and percussion class and um, it's, it's crazy and so your schedule's really, really full. So reading for fun just did not happen. Now I would come home on break and read and it was always fantasy. Um, but actually, those four years in college kind of um, knocked me off kilter. And I, I didn't get back into reading until I was married for a number of years. I was reading to my kids once they come along. But it's funny how when you get out of the habit of something, it's just you realize you're just not doing it. And I just snapped one day. And I'm like, why am I not reading? And I started getting library books. and. That's what happened. So, so yeah. Um, and what's really almost embarrassing is that um, I did not know who um, Tolkien was until college. Um, I don't know if I grew up in some kind of literary vacuum. Um, I also did not. I didn't know about the Narnia books. I didn't know who C.S. Lewis was. Um, obviously, these books weren't in my school. I don't know why. I did watch the animated version of The Hobbit. Do you, did you ever see that? It's oh, been of course. Oh, my gosh. So I loved that. And every time it would be on on Saturday morning, I'd be like, yay, I love this. Didn't know it was a book. So when I discovered that these were books, um, that's what I was reading on my college breaks, like Lord of the Rings. And, um, yeah, so I was a little late to the game there. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm now I just read whenever I can. <laughs> Well, now obviously you're, you're you're caught up. So, uh, one more question about music, and then let's move on. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk writing. For, for God's sake, let's talk Stormrise. Um, but um, I wanted to ask: uh, Did all of that training, that uh, having to get up mandatory creativity every day for music, did that help prepare you for life as a writer later? It probably did. Um, the the diligence part and the commitment part. Because you know how it is when you're first starting out as a writer, it can be overwhelming and getting through that first novel is um, a huge accomplishment because it's hard, you know? Um, and even though you're probably gonna pitch it out because it's gonna be really terrible, it's just that discipline of writing no matter what your schedule looks like, like every day, every other day, whatever. And with music, it's the same, um, especially when I was preparing for one of my piano recitals. Um, it was not unusual for me to practice five or six hours in a day on top of my schoolwork and classes. So that takes a lot of discipline and very little social life. So, um, so I lived that and I loved it. And that was my peak of, oh, I love being a musician and doing this. And obviously couldn't maintain that because that's ultimately not, I think, what I was supposed to be doing. Um, but yeah, not that I ever made that conscious connection, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, no matter what art you are pursuing, there's a part of it that's just sit down and do it. For the piano, it's you've got to start out with your scales and your arpeggios every day. You've got to warm it up, get the technique going, you know, ooch that um, metronome marking up higher so you're going a little bit faster, a little bit faster, you're getting your, um, that's not fun, that's boring. You know, it's boring, uh, you know, but you have to start your day that way. And you know how it is with writing, too. Sometimes you sit down and it's not notes, it's words and you have to get them out. You just have to get them out. So oh, each moment is bliss. There's never a frustration. No, no frustration. <laughs> it's nirvana every single day. <laughs> 
Oh, regular esteemed audience members know that's not true. Um, so tell me about the transition then when you're when you became a stay at home mom, which good for you. Um, I have more respect for stay at home parents than since becoming one than ever before. Like, oh, well, this is this is this is an absolute job that's way harder than when I had two or three jobs at a time. And nobody's paying me, right? <laughs> so how uh, when when did writing uh, rear its wonderful head again? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I have five kids, and when I when four of them were around, um, I there was a website. This was in the late mid to late nineties. Um, there was a website called ThemeStream.com, and it was a pay per click website for writers to write articles um, in whatever topic you know you chose to write on, and you literally got paid a dime a click for reading, you know, people who read. Um, they were just, you know, short, basic articles, maybe two to 500 words in length, no big deal. Um, and I paid for Christmas that year with the money I made. And you don't usually hear stories like that, you know, like, wow, you really made enough money writing online for Christmas? Well, are so, we talking like a good Christmas or everybody got socks and a bow? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking a full stocking, presents under the tree Christmas. <laughs> and it was, uh, I felt great, you know, because as a stay-at-home mom, you know, who used to work before, sometimes you feel like, wow, I'm not like giving to this pot of money that we need to live on. So that felt really good to be able to do that. And I started to kind of grease my writing wheel, I think, doing that. The bad thing is that they had a really bad business model and they went defunct. But before they did, they dropped the pay-per-click rate to two cents. So that's a huge difference. And at the very end, when they folded, all the authors they still owed money to were not paid. Uh, so it was a really bad, messy thing. But for a short time, it was a magical, wonderful thing that was actually making money for me. But I think the real thing that um, that did in my life was it got me writing again. So, um, so I had a vision to write a collection of anecdotal essays for stay-at-home moms. So um, that's what I did. I wrote, um, my lima beans are allergic to my spoon. Um, I got that title from my then four-year-old daughter who actually said that to me at the dinner table. That's adorable. Isn't it great? <laughs> as soon as she said it, I thought to myself, this is a book title. So as I was compiling these essays, um, drawn from my own life as a stay-at-home mom, I thought, yeah, this is going to be the title. So um, I self-published that through a POD um, publisher that was really great to work with, Booklocker. I think they're still out there, uh, booklocker.com. Um, and the book is still available? or way, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. Um, you know how your earliest writings you wish nobody could see? It's one of those. I, it's not horrible, but I've grown so much as a writer. I'd rather not. I mean, it's still like there are still like used copies of it available, but um, I let my my yearly contract um, for the POD part um, expire. <laughs> so it's it's not available anymore. Um, but... I published one uh, back in when I was 20. Uh, that I, I don't even reveal the title anymore unless you see me in person and I use it as an object lesson. Uh, there's one copy out there that's available for a thousand bucks, and I figure if somebody's willing to pay that, it's yours. But I bought up all the cheap ones. <laughs> I understand. Awesome. Yeah. 
So okay, you you publish that, and that doesn't slake that doesn't slake your thirst. You're 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 still uh, ready to write more. So what happens next? Well, I had actually branded myself in my head as an essayist, and I truly believed that I couldn't write a novel. Um, you know, we just believe things about ourselves, and I felt like I had found my niche um, in writing nonfiction, short, anecdotal, humorous essays. I felt comfortable. Um, people were responding really well. People were laughing. You know how good it feels when people laugh at something you write, right? So I was enjoying that and never really had any aspirations to write a novel. And then <laughs> I read The Little White Horse <laughs> and that changed everything. Um, and I don't like to say negative things about other novels. Um, even old novels, you know? Um, that's why I don't leave reviews on Goodreads and Amazon. Um, I'll, I'll mark off that I've read something, but you know, the writing community is small and I want to be a voice of encouragement to people. So they don't need to know my opinions. Um, but this- I mostly agree, although Atlas Shrugged will make you a worse person. Don't read it, esteemed audience. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> There's always that one outlier. Right? <laughs> That's where all my hate goes. Straight for Ayn Rand. Um, so uh, my daughter, uh, who is now a writer herself, was a voracious reader. At the time, she was maybe nine or ten, and she read this book. I bought it for her because I don't know if you ever saw the cover, but it's got this what looks actually more like a unicorn on the front cover. And it promises this wonderful mythical tale about this magical horse slash unicorn. And it just isn't. And um, so she read it and she didn't, she liked it. So I thought, well, I should read this book because she liked it. And so I was actually curled up in bed reading this, this middle grade book and really not liking it at all. And as I was reading it, I actually had the, what sounds like a very arrogant thought of, I could do better than this. I had never had that thought before, you know? But the reason I hated it, and I didn't even have words for it at the time, now I know that as a writer, I can say the protagonist in the story had no agency. Everything happened to her. Everything happened for her. She didn't propel the motion of the story at all. She would go to bed and wake up and somebody had mysteriously laid out all of this, this writing clothing and stuff. So she, oh, I guess I'll go writing today, that kind of thing. And you would sit there and go, really, really? And everything's just gonna fall in your lap? And it was just so boring. So I decided I would try it. And that's how it all began. Kind of sounds like, you know, I'm not going to say the thought I had. I had a, a bad thought and I'm swallowing it and I'm a better person for having done that. Good. Okay. So it's uh, being a good mom that propels you to read this book that your daughter's interested in that now propels you to on a quest to write a better book. And was it always going to be a middle grade book? What's the plan? Um, I didn't even have a concept of middle grade, young adult. I just knew story and I just knew I want to write a fantasy. And what what came out in this mess in my head was um, a fantasy story with two protagonists, one that was at a middle grade age and one that was a teenager. So I didn't know what I was doing at all. Um, <laughs> I really didn't. So, um, so I didn't have a label for it. I just knew that I wanted to write it. And one of the neatest things that happened, even though, of course it was terrible, of course it was, but my 10 year old daughter was, read it and loved it so much that it inspired her to start writing. And she began to write 
with gusto. I mean, she started to write novels like right away. This um, was your book that, that inspired her. Yes, my very bad first novel. So it's being great. a great parent strikes again. Yes, and I didn't even do it on purpose. That's the amazing part. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and she um, she's a writer today. She actually we had the same agent, um, and I just am so proud of her. So um, it's just really neat the way that all worked. So. Do we want to shout out this agent who is uh, thought worthy to represent both you and your daughter? Or do we want to leave them anonymous? No, because I love her so much. It's Danielle Burby with the Kristen Nelson Agency. And she's phenomenal. Danielle, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on the show so we can <laughs> learn more about how you are so talented that you've been able to, to wrote two amazing authors. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but everybody else listening, don't write any more queries. She needs to focus on Jillian and her daughter, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I had read that you're looking at uh, five years um, uh, before you were able to find an agent, and then another five years after that before you were able to – was that two publication or two securing a publishing deal? No, that was to getting the next agent, and then there were two more years after that. So it was actually a total of 12 years from when I started seriously pursuing novel writing. And uh, the book deal for Storm Rise. How many uh, books did you write during that time? Or did you have to write before you finally got an agent? Um, I, I keep losing count. But I think Storm Rise is like my 12th or 13th novel. So a lot of writing. A whole lot of writing. Um, my first agent, whom I was with for five years, um, I think we went out with four projects. And none of them sold. And then um, after five years with him, I signed with Danielle and uh, was with her for almost two years. And one, our first project that went out also didn't sell. So I have five projects that didn't sell before Stormrise sold. So it was a very long journey. So what keeps you going uh, during a journey like that where you don't know that one day it's all going to be okay? You're going to be on the middle grade ninja podcast. My God, <laughs> <laughs> the highest height of the. I've been waiting the for for twelve years. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what kept you going during that time? A lot of things kept me going. Um, first of all, not writing in a vacuum, being um, surrounded by other writers who were not only supporting me but whom I could also support, which I think is so important, um, that give and take. And you know how wonderful the writing community is. And so that was really important. Um, I could not have done this without God and my faith in God. There were times when I just wanted to quit, but I just felt like um, this is my gift and this is what I need to be doing. And I needed to stay the course. Um, so that um, was a big part of my journey. Um, my husband, who has always believed in me, and you know what that's like to have a spouse who supports you and believes in you. Um, I couldn't have made this journey without him either. And actually, the blog, Miss Snark's First Victim, uh, was a big factor, too, because when you have an audience of people who are listening to you and receiving encouragement and advice from you and watching you more closely than you may even know, you can't just quit and walk away after you've told them a hundred times, don't give up. So it kind of keeps you honest. Well, you say that, but I can think of a couple of prominent bloggers over the years who've done it. I won't, I won't oh. shame them. Oh, okay. <laughs> <But> it's happened. <laughs> I'm sure it does. And, you know, I just didn't want to be that person. I'm like, you know, you can't 
be encouraging people and and calling them forth, you know, to to rise up and keep going and don't let this crush you because my goodness, it's a crushing journey, right? Can be. Um, and so you have to be the example for the people you're kind of shepherding. Um, so there were times when I really believe that's what kept me going. Um, so that's no small thing. And so that's why I'm so grateful for the community that grew out of that blog because, um, yeah, I was writing the blog posts and doing all the things in the contest, but, but that writing community was, was giving back to me probably more than they ever knew. Lots of uh, questions about that. And if I want to talk more about the blog, uh, so let me do the responsible thing and real quick mention Storm Rise by Jillian Bohem. Available now. Make sure you buy it. Am I holding up? Yes. Make sure you buy it. It's got a beautiful dragon on the cover. We'll talk in detail about it. But two things on the on the back of that before we talk more Storm Rise. Um, uh, I'm always fascinated with someone who's willing to share uh, about their religious faith and how that informs their decisions. Were there uh, signs along the way? Did, what? How did you feel you were receiving communication from God that, yes, Jillian, boom, uh, continue to the path you're on, and one day I will lead you to the Middle Grade Ninja podcast <laughs> and the publication? Um, you know, it's just, uh, for me, um, has been a matter of prayer. And when you pray about something, and it's not at all pretty because, you know, I... I don't hesitate to just pour out my angst to God, like, you know, I've been doing this for so long, you know, you know, that, um, but when peace settles on your heart, when you make the decision to continue, that speaks very loudly to me, you know, that's that peace of God saying, you know, you can't see the future, but you need to trust and just, you know, keep moving forward. And sure, let the angst out. I got you. Let the anger out. Cry. Yes, you know, I've cried and I've declared that I'm going to quit. Um, but God's big enough to handle my emotional outbursts and, and it's all good. So in the end, it was just a deep sense of peace and just um, a matter of, are you just going to trust me to work this out in my timing and not your timing? Um, I learned that story Many years ago, when I'm um, in our early married years, when I was having trouble conceiving um, and I just wanted to be a mom and it wasn't happening, we were seeing fertility doctor, that's very emotional roller coaster, um, and all the tests were coming back normal, but nothing was happening. And it was the same thing back then. You know, I was lamenting and grieving and, you know, feeling, you know, that longing to be a mom and, and feeling sad when my friends were getting pregnant. I should have felt happy. That's how you feel when your friends get book deals and you want to be happy for that. You know, same thing, right? There's a parallel here. Well, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I have only yeah. ever felt good things for my friends. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there was all that. And the same thing happened back then. It was pretty much like, Jill, are you going to trust me to, to bring you this child in my perfect timing? And so what I had to do back then was I had to step away. And, you know, one of the things you have to do is take your body temperature every morning to, to um, graph, you know, when ovulation occurs, it's a whole big, it's a lot. I had to walk away from that. I had to put the thermometer away. I canceled a doctor appointment, walked away and had to come to a place of just faith. That same month, I got pregnant with my firstborn. 
big life lesson in faith and trust and God's timing instead of mine. So now fast forward <laughs> many years and I'm on this writing journey and I'm writing and I'm, you know, um, doing a lot of research in the publishing industry because I am an information person. I want to know things. I want to understand things. So I kept learning and learning and writing and like, okay, I'm on this trajectory. I'm going to get an agent. And it took me five years to get my when, uh, when did you start seriously re researching? Did you write your first book? And then, well, it's book two, book three. What, how, how early in the process did you it begin happened, researching? It happened at the same time. Um, I, I was writing that first very bad fantasy novel. Um, and as I was doing that, I was online and I was researching. And one of the early agent blogs that was out at the time was Kristen Nelson's blog, which is a really kind of cool full circle thing. Um, and she was one of the very few agents at the time who was a, a re accepting email queries. Um, it was all still, I would say, 70 to 80% snail mail at the time I began my journey. Um, but Kristen had done writers the favor of compiling a list of all the agents who were now accepting e-queries. I was so excited about that. Um, I was always into the technology, always into the online stuff, and I thought, well, this makes total sense. It's so fast and easy, and it doesn't cost anything. Um, so I was, I was doing the thing when it was all just making that transition from paper to e. Um, so it's it feels like a long time ago now because now I mean who who accepts paper queries anymore? I don't think anybody does probably. Yeah, young authors don't know my pain of going to the store to buy the finest stock of paper you have, sir. I need the fanciest envelopes you have. These the are going to agents for God's sake. Right. They have to be top quality. <laughs> Wash your hands before you take these letters because no smudges. Yeah. You, you just tell me if there's any uh, post people between here and New York that smoke because I don't want them smoking around my letters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want them to arrive smelling pristine. pristine. So, okay, so how kind of research are you doing and at what point do you decide to become a resource uh, for authors and how, did, how does that happen? It was a spur of the moment thing. It was seriously... And one of those ideas, the kind you wish you always had when you were writing. Um, I was upstairs on my computer and I suddenly had the thought, I would really like to start a blog for other writers. And I would like it to be anonymous so that it's kind of safe to share whatever, you know, um, without my name attached or anybody else's name attached. And so I opened up Blogger and I started the blog. My, my youngest daughter was... I think seven months old at the time. So I was in the midst of nursing a baby and doing the mom thing. And that was my life then. And it just, it just took off. I think there was a need for it at the time. Um, there weren't a lot of contests out there. Like now there's so much to choose from for writers for contests. And Twitter has really helped that to explode for writers. But when I was starting Miss Narc's First Victim, it that wasn't true. So I think um, it was You were the pretty much the game in town, at least for middle grade and young adult folks. Um, I think in the beginning, I think I was. Yeah. And I think that's what drew my original readership to me. You've been uh, part of my tribe for a really long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. Why didn't I ever want to contest authors? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that's, you know, that's not true. Because uh, I did want a copy of Agent Demystified at one point. I still oh, have mean, it. <laughs> it makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> no, anytime I talk to uh, writers uh, of, uh, 
uh, of our genre uh, who've been active in the last few years. If I mention Miss Snark's first victim, Authoress Anon, or they'll mention it. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll they'll mention it in uh, combination with Middle Grade Ninja, which always makes me feel good. Because, oh, what must be somebody if I'm getting mentioned in the same sentence as Miss Snark's first victim? Now we're talking. <laughs> They're literary rambles in there. My, my God. <laughs> um, and, and, and all of the rest of the wonderful blogs I was going to name yours next but I'm going to stop now before I make enemies because <laughs> I'll leave somebody out <laughs> so um, we'll, let's talk a, a little bit about uh, a little bit about everything so we'll remind people why the name Miss Stark's first victim well and I was going to say that the what was probably the premier blog for writers at the time was not mine it was Miss Snark um, the literary agent. And um, I was an avid reader of her blog because she um, gave so much insider information, which was what I was so hungry for at the time. And what happened was she, um, just off the cuff on one of her blog posts, mentioned, hey, if any of you are brave enough to send me your first page, do it and I'll critique it on the blog. And she just kind of said it in passing. It wasn't like something she was announcing. And I was like, well, dang, I'm going to do that. So um, so I sent it to her. I emailed it to her. And she wrote me back. And she's like, hey, are you serious? Because I'll do this on my blog if you want me to. And then I got all nervous. Now, here's a typical dumb new writer thing. I'm like, I said to her, OK, you can do that. But will you please change the names? Because I was afraid like people would like steal the names of my characters. Yeah. So. This, this, I'm assuming this was not Stormrise. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. It was called The Seeds of Perinfei. That's what it was called. So, um, so she did. She changed them to ridiculous names, like really funny, ridiculous names. Um, but she put it up there and she said, this incredibly brave snarkling has put her work out, blah, blah, blah. And she crucified my work in the nicest possible way. But I mean, she really, I mean, it was not good writing. It was very overwritten purple prose. I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, but I fortunately was able to receive what she said and instead of getting crushed because you never know how you're going to respond um and it was my first um thing like that where I threw my work out into the void and got feedback um but it actually was a pivotal point in my writing because I was able to take some of the things that she said and incorporate them as I continued to write so it was a big step in my learning process so when I made my blog I named it Miss Snark's first victim because I was really her first victim. It was me. And um, so I How long to... uh, after that, that experience, are you forever celebrating this and, and attaching it to yourself? <laughs> I don't even remember my timeline anymore because I'm getting so old. Um, yeah. Happens to um, us all. You younger esteemed audience members will find out what we're talking about soon enough. <laughs> yes. Yes. They will. So, okay. So, within what, a year, maybe less? I would say, well, I'm trying to think because I, I did finish the horrible novel and I went, oh dear, I actually queried it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the scariest part of all um, is that I got a request for a partial. From Donald Moss. Really? And he was like my dream agent at the time. 
And um, and so this was all, I really think this was all like within a year, a year's time. I really do. It was pretty compact. Um, and Donald was kind enough to write me a personalized rejection letter, um, which I would have framed if I, you know, didn't have a husband to tease me. But I was so thrilled that he took the time to do this. And it's, as you know, very unusual for an agent to give a personalized rejection. But he did. And he gave me some suggestions. And I, of course, was stupid enough to do some revisions and then requery me and said, well, you said this and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote, oh, this poor man probably just really regretted writing me the personalized letter. So um, so within this You time, wrote him a little bit of an argumentative response then? Um, it was, no, actually, it was very sycophatic, very, um, oh, thank you so much. And I, I made these changes and I hope you'll read this and yeah, it was, it was, no, I was definitely not one of those in your face. How dare you authors? I know I've heard, I've, I've heard the horror stories too. Anytime Janet Reed posts one, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly excited because I, ah, it's like when you see something bad happen to somebody else, like lightning just struck. Okay. I'm probably in the clear for a little bit. <laughs> right, right. I'm just going to step over here. Right. Thanks for stepping on the landmine for all of us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> So uh, Miss Sark's first victim had to start off relatively small. Uh, mm -hmm. When did you start to notice your readership had grown well beyond just your, your friends and family? Well, actually, it was pretty fast because um, it was only a month or two after I started the blog that I had the idea for the secret agent contests. Um, and so I started to write emails to agents introducing myself and you know, telling them about this, this idea. And Holly Root was the first agent I got um, for uh, the secret agent contest. And because I had an actual agent coming onto my blog, I think the word spread pretty quickly. Um, like, wow, there's a contest with an actual agent. You know, writers love this stuff. This is a great opportunity. Um, unfortunately for Holly, I had not put parameters in place um, because I didn't know that I would need them. And she ended up, it was well over 100 entries, um, I want to say in the 120s, I can't remember now, um, that she read through and critiqued every single one while she was out of town in, in the boonies somewhere where there was bad connection um, on the internet. And she just put hours into this thing and I felt terrible. So, um, so after that experience, I decided, okay, I'm going to have to cap this out at 50 entries per contest. And so that's where that came from. But that first, that first one, oh my goodness, she just really went the extra mile for me and without knowing me. So I was super thankful for her kindness. You should always shout out the greatness of Holly Root. Uh, go back. I don't remember how many episodes back it is, esteemed audience, but listen to my conversation with Holly Root. One of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had about publishing. Uh, and I love every literary agent who's ever appeared on the show or on the blog, but Holly Root in particular is just a very special person that's, that's, that's wonderful to talk with. I'm so glad that uh, it was her and not uh, a, a, a different literary agent that would have told you to drop dead and maybe yes. killed the whole Miss Stark's victim early. Been, you know, you're right. <laughs> it could have been really bad. It could have just blown up. And she was so gracious. So I really have her to thank for kicking off the whole secret agent thing. And then that went on. I mean, and and I should point out that you're doing this while you're pursuing your own writing the whole time and mm -hmm. homeschooling and raising four to five children at any given point, right? Right. 
I'm serious. You're always raising. You don't stop raising the yeah. kids. So you're always raising the five. But were you <laughs> homeschooling all five at the same time? Um, well, my our youngest daughter is actually eight years younger than our next one up. So um, by the time she was starting kindergarten, um, our oldest son had graduated from high school. So I actually never was technically homeschooling all five of them, but I did have all five of them in the house and they all survived. So it, it's, it's good. And now she's my last one. Um, all the other four have all graduated and um, Molly is in seventh grade. So life feels a lot easier now, only having one in the home. So but yeah, back then it was it was pretty crazy. So for all those uh, writers that come to my workshop and give me the bullcrap excuse, if I've got kids, how were you managing to pull that off that whole time? What did your what did your schedule look like at its most hectic, and what does it look like now? Um, for many years, I had a firm writing time of one to three in the afternoon because that's when the little one took her nap. And you, I'm just a firm believer in naps for children and not all parents feel that way but that was my philosophy and um so she had her two-hour nap and that's when i wrote and the other kids had their afternoons free because we always did the lion's share of the homeschooling in the morning because unlike a school situation when there's a classroom there's no wasted time they just can do the work and get it done in a lot shorter time than what a whole school day would be so by one o'clock they were all done with their lesson work um, the little one was sleeping. Um, the other kids could pursue whatever it was they would want to pursue, um, play or whatever. And I would go in my office and write. So that became my um, modus operandum for many years. Um, then the little one, eventually they outgrow their naps, unfortunately. But I'm also a big believer in what's called room time when they um, they need to go in their rooms with their toys and books and have a quiet time and learn to um be happy being alone and staying busy on their own, which is a good life skill. Um, so I continue. I'm doing it. Oh my God. I never even thought of it. I've got a, he just turned, uh, he's just turned six, but now it's, it's time for room time. We're making that a thing. Thank you, Jillian. That's a wonderful tip. <laughs> it, it really works. Now, if you're starting them at six, start short and, you know, don't throw them in there for two hours, but start with 20 minutes. I'll and, take it. 20 minutes to yep, do a couple of emails would be swell. 20 golden <laughs> minutes, but it's good for the child and it's good for the parent. It really is. So highly recommend it. Um, and then, of course, they outgrow that, too, because once they get old enough, they can pretty much be anywhere and not necessarily be disruptive if you're having to do something else. Unless it's something like this where it's, you know, a phone call or something where they really need to go away. Um but when my other four were in doing their afternoon thing while I was writing, um, and I'm not making this up, I put a sign on my door of my office that said, do not knock unless something's on fire or you're bleeding from the head. <laughs> and they didn't. Anything below the neck is fine. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. <laughs> right. Severed limbs, whatever. Just, just don't bother me. And... Uh, Pick it up, put it in some milk. We'll take care of it later. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for us. Gotcha. So, okay. Uh, and another question I, I had about uh, Miss Dark's victim, just because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. um, being authoress Sanan for so long, um, and now you're you're out and you're promoting the book, and you've had this incredible history. 
uh, of being part of the author community. Is there, uh, do you have any regrets about having been anonymous first? Do you wish it had always been JillianBohm.com uh, or StormRise.com if you, <laughs> if you had known uh, back, back that many years that's what you needed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knew? Um, I really don't have any regrets because I, um, I really, my initial vision was for it to be an anonymous, safe place where people could share their work and didn't have to share their names. And I also felt like it was good for me to separate a lot of the things about my personal life from um, how I was branding myself online as an author and as a part of the writing community. Um, I never talked about my kids. Um, the only thing I made clear as authoress was that I was married. I called him Mr. A and he loved that actually. Um, so everyone knew I was married but they didn't know where I lived or that I had children. Um, and I, I really am glad I, I did it that way. And actually then when I finally had my big reveal of who I was, the support blew me away. People were incredibly kind and incredibly excited. You know, it's not like I'm some secret celebrity and, oh, wow, it's her. Like, I'm just nobody. I'm just, you know, I'm just telling you who my name is. And people just make you feel so great, you know? And that's just the writing community. I mean, I think that's almost always true about the writing community. So. Well, on behalf of the writing community I've been a part of, thank you uh, for years and years. It's good to finally have a place to put all this love we've had uh, for Authoress Anon all, the, all these years for all the wonderful things you, you've done for the writing community. And what, what kept you doing those things? Because that's time away from the kids. That's time away from your own writing. Uh, I know it has to be thrilling to host those first few contests, maybe even 20 contests. That was exciting. But to continue to do that, uh, there has to be a point of diminishing returns where it's less exciting. There were, in fact, um, during my heyday, I was running 10 secret agent contests a year. I was taking June and December off. And so I was always preparing for the next one and always looking ahead to um, schedule the next agent and writing the emails and searching for new agents to, uh, to invite. And so there was a lot of work involved that wasn't even writing work. Um, and then I started the um, Baker's Dozen that we started up in December. I think the first one of those was in 2010. Um, and that was a huge hit. And so um, I kept doing that, um, which was very time intensive because um, I had to read all of those entries um, and choose what I thought was the best to, uh, to enter the auction. So that was a real time suck. Um, and Did you ever invite people in to help you or that, that would have betrayed yeah, your right. anonymous identity? Um, for those five um, Baker's Dozen contests, um, Jody Meadows did help me um, to go through those entries. So it actually ended up being fun, um, but still a lot of time. And after the first Baker's Dozen contest, several of my writing friends contacted me privately and said, you know, you should really charge a little something for this. You're putting a lot of time into it. I've never wanted to monetize the blog, so that was hard for me to listen to. Um, but sometimes when more than one person is giving you the same advice, it's usually time to pay attention. So I did, and I instituted a small fee, and for the most part, people didn't even complain about it. And I was like, oh, what was I worried about? You know, I, I was worried that I didn't want people to think I just wanted to make money off them, because that was never my intention. But it did make a difference. 
um, with the the hugeness of that contest. And so I was able to pay Jody a little money. I was able to pay um, our developer a little money because that's the other thing that made running the blog much easier was the automated system and the bot. Um, that um, his name is Michael and he is fantastic. He had a desire to um, give back to the blog and he offered to create an automated system for submissions um, and in a bot that could take a whole lot of entries and then make it into a lottery so that um, people wouldn't have to sit by their computers and wait for nine o'clock, um, which is what was happening. These contests were filling up in like 15 minutes and then people were getting upset because they didn't get a chance because they were on the West Coast or whatever. So he made my life so much easier. I could just go click and it would just run. And um, my goodness, that just changed everything. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I was talking to uh, Laura Martin uh, the last time she was on. I uh, was talking about one of her earlier memories was stopping on the side of the road because she had to go to some event for her kids. But she had to hit the button on uh, Miss Snark's first victim at exactly oh, 9 yeah. o'clock to oh, get her contest to check out. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yep. Yeah. That's that's been a big deal for a lot of so let's talk for for people who want to uh, be the next uh, Miss Snark's first victim. Um, forget it, the the position's filled. <laughs> we we have all we need. But for those people that want to be as successful as you have been online in creating content and creating a brand, what tips would you have for them? What's what's helped you do that? Huh. Uh, you need to decide ahead of time what it is you want to be or who it is you want to be and then don't veer from it. Um, and I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, this is just something that kind of happened organically. And for me, I think what made my authorist brand successful is that I was never trying to be anybody. I really wasn't. I was actually myself with a mask on. So my sense of humor, the things that were important to me, um, I was really honest about. Um, my responses to things were very genuine. Um, and so that, I, cause I always had in the back of my head that someday, you know, I'll have a book and someday I can tell these people who I am and what my name is. I didn't want there to be some kind of weird paradigm shift between authoress and Jillian Baum. Um, because I just am who I am. And I think that because I was just myself with all my quirkiness or whatever, um, I think that helps people feel safe. They feel like they can trust you. Um, they feel like they want to be a part of the community. Um, and, uh, I think that's the best thing that we can all offer to any community. So when you're branding yourself as an author or as whatever you're branding yourself as, I think it's really important to, be yourself and just be yourself within your brand. So for me, I was an aspiring author. I wrote YA fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and I was on this particular uh, trajectory of my journey and I was wanting to share what I've learned and also share my personal journey with other writers. And my goal was to encourage and build community. And so I did that, but I was still myself. So I think it all comes back to just be who you are. Even so, was there a moment of terror when you knew it was finally time to reveal yourself? Oh. There was going to be somebody out there going, I thought you'd be taller or whatever. Honey, <laughs> it was terrifying. It was really scary. It really was. Even knowing what a wonderful 
community, the writing community is. It was very scary. You just feel like, you know, the emperor's new clothes. He's walking out with nothing on. Here, you know, you just exposed. And yeah, you just, um, you just don't know. You can't be sure. Is somebody going to hate on me? Is this going to be awkward? Am I going to, and of course people were wonderful, you know, and of course they were. But when you're, when you're nervous about something, you forget sometimes that people are actually wonderful. For the most part. <laughs> on a good day <laughs> i refuse to believe you've you've run that site for so many years and not encountered trolls <laughs> oh, no. i i can tell you troll stories but we won't waste time with those oh <laughs> uh, we won't i think uh, it's probably more than past time that we start talking about uh storm because i really did love this book uh and i want to i want to talk more uh about what went into it so I'm trying to think if there's any preface question I want to I want to put in here if we just want to get straight to it. Hey, you know what? One one question I do want to ask before we talk uh, pure storm rise uh, is you had published your essays for moms or essays about 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 momming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, then you had published Agent Demystified, mm-hmm. uh, which was an absolutely wonderful guide um, to how to find an agent, everything you needed to know for getting uh, getting your feet wet. Um, Having had that experience when it came to your fiction, and we're talking 12 years, and I know that, that God said, you know, eventually I'll, I'll lead you on the path to middle grade ninjas podcast and, and all the rest. <laughs> um, but during that time, was there never a, a temptation to just self-publish your books? There wasn't. Um, and the self-publishing industry is very different now from when I did it. So I think it's a lot better now than it was. But after my experience with it, um, the one thing I knew I wanted for my next book was distribution. And that's one thing that you just don't get when you self-publish. I wanted my book to be on bookshelves in Barnes and Noble and Borders at the time, which I'm still grieving the loss of, and um, libraries. You know, I wanted my book to be in libraries. And so when you get a a contract with a publisher, they have the means to get your book out there in the different places. Um, So I knew that I wanted that. And um, so that's one of the things that's important to me uh, as an author. And it's just been thrilling to me, you know, for people have been sending me pictures of Stormrise. Oh, look, it's in my library. Oh, look, it's in my bookstore. And I love that because I wanted it to fly free into the world and, and to know that it's out there and I didn't have to do a thing. You know, I just, wrote it and it's out there and and so and it's not that my first book wasn't available it was completely available through ingram anybody could have ordered it at any time but there was no visibility it wasn't out there on any shelves and um the only shelves it was on was a local bookstore that i went in and said hey will you put my book on your shelves because that's what you do um so i think that in the future if i were ever to to do some more nonfiction writing i would be more inclined to um to self-publish um probably digitally it's so easy to do that um and i would probably do that but right now i'm just very content having a traditional publishing contract well now that you've got it your book is out in the world is it everything you thought you you would be everything that was worth uh, working for all these years it really was it really was it was magical no more teasing. Let's get to it. Uh, let's talk about Stormrise. So for those people that haven't had a chance to read it yet, but are are, are ordering their copies as they're listening to this, uh, give them uh, an overview. What is Stormrise about? 
Stormrise is about a young girl named Rain, who's 17, and she lives in a society where it's not very cool to be female. And when the story opens, um, there is a conscription. Uh, one male from every household needs to go fight uh, in the army. And Storm has a twin brother, I'm sorry, Rain has a twin brother named Storm, who is mentally disabled um, because of a sickness uh, when they were infants. And so she takes his place, dresses as a boy, so that her brother does not have to go off and uh, fight and most likely be killed. Um, in so doing, she uh, buys some dragon powder, um, which helps her with her disguise, and she inadvertently awakens the sleeping dragons of old. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, well, a lot of things, but, but thinking about... Well, heck, now I've lost the question. I was all excited to ask it, and it's gone. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it really is gone. I wanted to, to ask you about uh, Storm, but I can't remember what uh, specifically I learned. You know, let's move on. Uh, let's uh, talk instead about, uh, let's talk about dragons, because uh, that fascinates me, because uh, uh, we know dragons are coming into the story. We know that there is a dragon on the cover, uh, we know for sure before this book's over, we better get dragons. I've, I've been promised in the description on the cover. If I, if I get to the end, here comes my angry email and my one-star review on Amazon. <laughs> uh, so why, um, no, just kidding authors. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it, but I wouldn't do it. Um, so why, uh, why was it important to start this in a world where there's some reason not to believe in dragons prior to their arrival? That's a good question. I don't think in the beginning I was consciously making that decision, but as I was developing the story, I felt that it would be stronger if Rain had to overcome her own disbelief in order to accept that the voice that she's hearing is actually a dragon. If she had grown up believing in them, it would have been so easy. And you never want things to be easy for your protagonist, right? So... She had to overcome a lifetime of believing the dragons are just myths. So, um, and it made her personal struggle harder. So that's what I needed for her. Gotcha. And unless you mentioned that this is a society that's not cool with women, extremely oh. not cool with women. I think what like, it's that they, they, they get killed immediately if they're found impersonating a man so they right. can purchase uh, property or anything that you right. might want to do. Um, and obviously our own society is, is, is hostile toward women, but not, I, I'm going to go ahead and give us credit that we're a little bit ahead of the, of the characters in your novel. Maybe, maybe not as much as I'd want for us to be a little bit. Uh, so why was it important for you to have that environment? Does that just come back to creating as much conflict for your protagonist as possible or? Yep. It's the same thing. I mean, if it would have been no big deal for her to dress as a boy, then there would have been not as much risk. And, um, she needed to take a great risk. The choice that she made was out of a fierce love and loyalty for her family. Um, and so in order to make that more compelling, there needs to be a level of risk and sacrifice involved. And so, you know, a threat of possibly being killed is pretty risky. So that just seemed to work. 
Yeah, no, early on, every restroom break, I'm holding my breath. <laughs> they're they're going to find out. <laughs> I can't tell you how many restroom scenes I deleted. I think I... <laughs> over the great. top with the bathroom scenes. Yeah. I had one early reader say to me, wow, she really pees a lot. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think I better pull back a little here. Yeah. Need to add extra scenes of her purchasing big gulps everywhere she goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! It's kind of fun because typically that's just you know uh, you you cut those scenes. Uh, nobody in books or on TV ever goes to the bathroom unless every time she does, she could potentially be exposed and, and, and I assume instantly killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they bother with a little trial first or if it's just, all right, is that fire hot enough? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. We'll just never know. <laughs> <coughs> well, no spoilers. Maybe, maybe the book ends with rain dying. I, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it for uh, potential readers. Um, and so what um, with a world like this where it's there, I felt like there were um, familiar bits of DNA from other fantasy worlds and tropes, of course, uh, mm -hmm. which – Obviously, do you want a fantasy story that's going to be like the fantasy stories you love, or don't you? Um, but sure. what uh, what world specifically did you pull from? Were there any specific books or any specific societies uh, that informed how you invent and how you uh, how you created yours? Um, there's always a lot of things, of course, that I pull from. I really love the boy, uh, the girl dressing as a boy trope. Um, in fact, there is a tiny shout out in Stormrise to Eowyn, who is my favorite character from Lord of the Rings. Now you're going to go back and look for it, aren't you? <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> no, I caught it. <laughs> oh, well, of course, of course you did. <laughs> um, I'm a book nerd, madam. I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't even think that you didn't see that. My humblest apologies. <laughs> So, so yes, there's that. Um, yes, there's a Mulan vibe. Um, uh, yes, there's an um, Arya Stark vibe. Uh, although, to be honest, I hadn't even started um, watching Game of Thrones uh, until I had written Stormrise. Um, I read the first book many years ago and decided I didn't want to read the rest. And now I'm like, wow, I didn't read the rest because Game of Thrones. But um, so, yeah, so when it comes right down to if we're talking tropes, um, I just, I really enjoy um, that trope and playing with it. Um, but in saying that, what's also important to me is that for Rain, she found her strength not because she dressed as a boy, um, but, but in spite of it. Um, she found her strength in her authentic self um, that uh, she learned that her strength was always there as a female. Um, and I, to me, that's important, you know, not that she didn't have to set aside who she was um, because society demanded it. Um, she just was given the freedom to do what she needed to do when she was disguised. Um, so that's just important to me, you know, is there a little bit, and probably not a lot, but is there a little bit of identification on your part uh, as authoress Anon for so many years that, ah, yes, if you could become somebody else, you could do something like this? Isn't that funny? No, I don't think so, but that's very psychological. I don't know. Um, isn't it funny how people see things that we don't uh, when we write? 
Um, honestly, probably not. Um, because Funny I and, and, and sometimes horrifying. Yes, I'm very horrified. Yes. <laughs> if I ever commit a serious crime, I'm going to confess to it in a book somewhere down the road. Right. It'll be in there. <laughs> and all so the books it's better not a community. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, 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 it'll it work its way out. Okay, so um, we're as you're going about your, your world building, uh, how are you keeping uh, everything straight? Are you writing your, your own Bible of terms and of, of tack is the money and here's how much tack you need to equal this? Do you have a whole currency system worked out? I do. Um, it's awful. I, I hate this stuff, but um, world building and drafting are my nasty places and revising is my joy place so um i write in scrivener and i'll never write in anything else because i love scrivener and so um there's um do you write in scrivener do are you aware of no everybody keeps trying to convince me and i'm aware of all of its advantages and i'm still such an old man i like microsoft word i'm comfortable oh, well, we just <laughs> won't talk about that then <laughs> but um there's a there's places where you can keep your research files. And so every time, you know, I have something new that I need to work out, whether it's, you know, the currency or, you know, names of whatever and links to things that I may have researched for world building purposes, I can just click over to them at any point and keep them all there. So I've always got running files. Um, when I'm in the process of working everything out, I just, you know, just type as I think. Um, a new technique that I've started is a list of what ifs, and I just start writing sentences that begin with what if. What if blah, blah, blah happens? What if this? And it's amazing how that opens up your mind to possibilities which is where I tend to get stuck in that planning phase sometimes, you know, working out the money systems and all these little systems. And you think you have a direction for your story and you forget that at that early phase, everything's a possibility. And for some reason, I tend to forget that. No, this has to happen. And then I try to force things, you know, and I'm still learning how to get this thing right, you know? So... Well, I mean, would you want to keep writing if you had it 100% down and every time it was going to be perfect no matter what you did? You're right. You're right. Because it's a journey and a process and it never ends. And I think that's the beauty of anything creative. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But I still get frustrated, you know. One sin you manage to avoid, because I'm always, I'm always a little bit wary of it if I see a book with a dragon on it. Yeah. I'm like, uh-oh. I, I might be in for a bit of a slog here, but I'm sorry. Oh, it's authorist's book. I'm reading it. <laughs> that, that's a different story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I worry about, well, I, I've, I've made fun of Tolkien before. Uh, I stand by it. I, I, I think he gets a lot of credit for being the first of his kind. Uh, and that's great and, and good for him. But there was there was some refining in the genre yet to be done. Uh, do you want to skip the long singing uh, the long songs and poems and we're going to Tom Bombadil's house, but don't worry sooner or later, there's going to be a ring and a fire. Um, <laughs> eventually uh, two books from now. Um, but you, there's obviously intricate world building going on here, um, but you're never slowing the story down to tell us all the facts about this world. It never feels like uh, a history lesson or a social studies lesson for a place that isn't real that I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how how do you manage to to work in all the details that we do need to know? But everything is going to add up by the time we get to the end. It makes sense. Like oh yeah, no, I know how we got here, but without bogging the reader down, what, what was the process of of getting there? Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that 
um, I, that really means a lot to me because it's important to me not to bog down a story with too many details while still having a strong world. And, um, you know, it's funny. I know we're not supposed to read our reviews, but I, I've read a bunch of them. And for the most part, you know, I've been okay. And now I've gotten to the point where I only read the four and five ones. But um, I believe there are authors who read their reviews and authors who lie about not reading their reviews. <laughs> okay, maybe that's true. <laughs> that's not coming clean, right? Um, so, but um, one thing that is has been frustrating is when some readers are saying, there's just no world building. There's just no world building. There could have been so much more world building. And I'm thinking to myself, there's so much world building. What there's not a lot of is description. And I think you're mixing the terms up because description does not equal world building. Um, and, you know, it's okay if readers get that. I mean, it's kind of a, an, an industry term, you know, but I think that some reviewers and readers are using the term world building and it's not what they mean. Um, if there wasn't a world, then you wouldn't have a setting for the story. What you really mean is you wish I would have taken a paragraph to describe the mountains or you wish I would have told you all the dragons, all the colors of their eyes in the cave. I mean, some writers are more descriptive and some readers appreciate that. And that's fine because, you know, we all have different taste but oh my goodness don't say there's not world building because that's not what's missing so I think that just because I've written so many novels and like the first whole bunch of them just were oh slog fests you know um oh my goodness and I go back and I look at them and I just see the there's just so much weight you know so much descriptive weight that I don't do anymore I think that um just going through the process over and over again with really good people editing and working with me. Um, with my first agent, um, his first assistant, uh, her name was Maddie. She worked on a couple books with me and she was incredible. So she brought me to a whole new level. And then my current agent, Danielle, was his new assistant and that's actually how our relationship began. So I actually worked on a couple novels with Danielle before she was ever my agent. That's how we knew we were a good fit. Mm. Um, and she is an incredibly good editor as well. And so she took me to yet another level. So when you go through that process and you're culling things and you're learning to streamline, you're learning how to tighten, you're learning how to, um, to create the world without bogging down the story, um, you just get a little bit better at it every time. So in that sense, I think that if Stormrise weren't my 13th book, it wouldn't be quite what it is. For sure, it wouldn't be. There would be too many words in it. There's probably, and I never want to put my own uh, baggage on other writers, um, but I, I think that, that, at least in my case, I had to get some stuff out of my system uh, yep. before, it, that, that way it could just be gone and over there, all right, I did the weird thing that I yep. always wanted to do. No one could say I didn't. Now let's put that on the shelf where no one can read it and let's focus on something someone might enjoy. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got... Uh, more questions for you, but I know we're we're running right up to the end of our time. Um, I did want to ask you just a little bit about research for the story and also how you settled uh, on language for the story, um, because it's uh, it's it's it, all the characters are consistently speaking a dialect that's true to their region, but it's not that far off from what we're used to in stories. We're not going to have to struggle with you know 
I think the first part of uh, learning to read a Twain novel is, is getting ready for that dialect. <laughs> Get past that. Uh, and, and, and then you're there. Um, so how did you decide on language? And then also how much research did you do to create your world? And how did you go about doing it? Wow, lots of big questions. Um, I'm trying to cram them all in before we got to call it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Um, I am a language and words person. I love to play with sounds and words. And I'm, I'm also a poet. So a lot of it began with writing The Lament of Nuaga, which had to be written before I got pretty far in the story because so much of the history and the story is related to that lament. Um, and so I wrote that with a certain meter, a certain rhythm that, um, so that the language needed to flow out of that just from a poem standpoint. Um, and also I had the, um, people who, um, still believed in dragons who in my story are referred to it as the ancient language. I think that they still have the ancient language, whereas all the other people who have names that are born out of um, nature, like rain and storm, her sister's willow, um, and um, sedge is actually a plant, a grass. So um, I actually did a lot of research when I was trying to um, fill out all the rest of the names of all the men in her unit because I wanted them to all be horticultural names. Um, and I was running dry, so I spent a lot of time on, you know, lists of herbs and things like that. To get, you know, isn't it weird, the stuff you end up? reading about like why am i reading about these what? i figure the nsa if they're monitoring my searches is like this guy's either a psychopath or a writer that's <laughs> one of those things very fine line there right and how long does it take a dead body to decompose and all that scary stuff oh we sure Good oh stuff. my gosh so i mean the plants were nothing right compared to the dead body searches um so um so there was that um i didn't spend a whole lot of time researching the actual language because I knew I wasn't going to actually have to develop it. I knew I wanted it to have a certain sound. And I think this is where my music comes in because I hear things, I hear them um, in my ear and I know what I want them to sound like. Um, so then I, I'll create a word um, almost because of the melody of it, if that makes sense. Um, I, I actually write that way too. Sometimes I will construct a sentence because it sounds right, like a musical phrase. I call it the cadence of the sentence. So if I write a sentence, it needs to have a particular cadence. If an editor comes in and line edits that particular sentence, I won't buy it because it's it's ruining the cadence of the sentence. You know, it's not even a grammar thing. It's it's I don't know. I think that's my musician geek coming out really. But that played Are you it able really to effectively argue for that side with an editor who's just not hearing it? Um. Fortunately, so far, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of that going on. Um, I was, <laughs> I got stuck on um, this. Now this is my grammar geek coming out. So in the first few pages of the story, we, we meet Rain's brother Storm and her sister Willow. And I did not have commas around those words because they were single word appositives, which don't need commas. So if I say... My sister, my sister Willow, it doesn't need commas around Willow. But if I say Willow, comma, my sister, comma, then you need those commas because my sister is the appositive, right? Sure. So my copy editor went in and stuck commas around them. So I, I wrote stet and I'm like, no commas around one word appositive. 
then my editor came back and said, well, um, this is our standard, um, you know, for, and I came back with, no, no, you don't understand. I don't want commas around saying over. So she said, it's okay. I, I, they're going to take about. <laughs> so they took about for me. But it's your name on the cover. I mean, like, to, up to a certain degree, like, if you wanted something like a monster, like two spaces after a period or the right. space in the wrong spot around an ellipsis, yeah. uh, then I could understand. But sure. <laughs> you, know, you got to pick your battles, right? I am always on the, the side of the person whose name is on the cover. And if it's a bad book, well, we know who to blame. But don't let it be a bad book. And it's, I should be blaming an editor. I didn't know <laughs> was responsible. Right. right. <laughs> Which I, I, I know we're, we're, we're at time. It's, it's, it's uh, time to wrap this thing up. So let me, uh, let me ask you my uh, final question. This has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad we, we, we got to chat today. And I hope that uh, when the next book comes out, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Uh, I've got more questions for you. Are you, uh, well, you know, two questions. I'm going to cheat. Are you uh, thinking that uh, it's going to be fantasy pretty much from here on out as far as the eye can see? Or do you have other genres that you're still yearning to, to, to write books in? I actually, um, after having written my first couple of books, I actually wrote nothing but YA science fiction, um, uh, dystopian um, and straight sci-fi. And I have a huge heart for it. Um, but in the end, it was just at the time, a harder market to break into. And fantasy is my first love anyway. It's what I cut my teeth on. I was reading Katherine Kurtz in seventh grade, Terry Brooks, um, just, you know, just love that old school fantasy stuff. And um, but for some reason, it takes more out of me to write it. And sci-fi, which I almost never read, I only like to watch. You know, I'm a huge Star Trek Next Generation nerd. And, you know, I just love, give me a good sci-fi movie anytime. But I don't really read it, but I love to write it. So I would love to be able to do both. I'd love to be able to continue to write fantasy, but I'd also like to branch back into, into the sci-fi world because I really just love it so much. I love writing it. Well, it seems close enough that there could be enough crossover from your, your fan base that you'd hope would be all right. I think so, too. I hope so. But for now, I'm definitely staying with YA Fantasy for at least the next couple of books. And here's my lazy uh, catch-all question for all the things that you could have told me if I just thought to ask you uh, and didn't. Uh, if there were uh, some advice uh, that you could go back and you could give yourself uh, all those years back when you uh, began writing and began blogging that would have made a significant difference that maybe would have made your path easier uh, in the hopes that all the uh, uh, soon to be Jillian Bohm's listing uh, could take that advice and, and maybe get a head start shave off a couple of years. What would you go back and, and tell yourself? That's a hard question um, because I, I'm so thankful for my journey um, even though it was so ridiculously long, um, I'm thankful for how I grew through it. Um, well, you say that, but there's somebody that's been at this for 40 years right now saying, ah, screw off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, honestly, and I think we probably all need reminders of this all the time, is to um, stop the comparisons inside my head. Um, especially for somebody who is in my position running a blog, with an active and vibrant writer's community, 
um, a lot of whom went on to um, get agents while I sat there. Um, and we have a, um, a Facebook group of our success stories from the blog. There are 60 authors on there um, who found their agents on my blog, either directly or indirectly. So it's very cool. And um, that was very exciting for me as a blogger, not necessarily exciting for me as an aspiring author. Um, I think some, I have been there and felt that pain. Yep, I think, haven't we all, right? It's hard. You, you want to encourage and be excited, and you are. But then there's that part of you that dies a little bit every time it happens. And Ninja helped me find an agent. Oh, good for you. Wish it would help me find an agent. <laughs> well, for you, buddy, you know? So, um, yeah, and I even had one of my success story. This is such a lovely tale. He, um, he, he published his debut. It was a young adult fantasy novel. And unbeknownst to me, he mailed me a copy. And he wrote a beautiful note on the inside, signed it, thanking me for the role that I had played in his journey. And, and here I am holding this book, you know, from somebody, it was amazing. And I was so honored, you know, that he did that. But there's still that part where, you know, your eyes fill with tears and you're like, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, you know, just. So I think I might take 10 year ago me and just pat her on the shoulder and say, okay, look, you're doing good work here in the blogging community. Step back. Just step back and, and, and write and do your writing. Give yourself permission to feel the feels, but don't spend so much time in your head making the comparisons and lamenting and because that just causes angst. And angst, as you know, gets in the way of our creative process. So probably 10 years ago, me could have used a little more of that sort of advice. When you get that time machine, you swing by Indiana and you tell me to. <laughs> we'll, be we'll be all right. We'll go back together. <laughs> well, Jillian, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? Where can they stalk you? They can stalk me just about everywhere. Um, my website is jillianbohm.com. And if you go there and go to the writer's page, you can get a free copy of Agent Demystified, which you mentioned earlier. Um, that is a book for all aspiring authors who are preparing to or are in the midst of querying agents. So that's for you um, to take for free. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And what's your handle on those? <laughs> am I supposed to know that? <laughs> <laughs> I am Jillian.bohm on Instagram. I am uh, Jillian.bohm slash authoress on Twitter. And I am uh, I have a Facebook page, Jillian.bohm YA author on Facebook. And I also just have a regular Facebook account under my name, Jillian.bohm. So you can find me on Facebook pretty easily. And, of course, Miss Snark's first victim. Uh, everyone should, of course, visit that website as well. Yes. Uh, and as always, uh, esteemed audience, I'm at uh, middlegradeninja.com. Find me on Twitter as MGNinja. Look forward to my two to three tweets a week. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, and, uh, Jillian, uh, thanks again for, for making the time to, to come on. This was wonderful. Thank uh, you. We will absolutely have to do it again. Yes. Um, I uh, always ask our guests to sign us off with a very specific, uh, totally justifies the name of the show, uh, ninja type phrase. And that phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you. <laughs>